On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and, a, and the mother, excuse me, let me adjust my glasses a little, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, we have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled him with water to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. After, that, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples as they stayed there for a few days. Lord, we just uh, pray that you'd reveal these words to us, help us to understand, and uh, just pray that you'd put the words on our pastor's mouth to speak and that we would hear and uh, apply what it is that we hear today. We just thank you for this day, the beautiful sunshine and uh, the crisp air, and Lord, we just pray that uh, you would be glorified in everything that's done today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. I just realized that uh, in the match this morning, I didn't export my notes, so you'll give me a second, won't you? Yes. The, the speaker, we can turn off the uh, can music. If you click um, Bruce down by the, it's gone, good. No, I can run back real quick if you, all right. Well, let's pray again. Father, can we thank you that we can never thwart what you're doing. My words can never mess up your eternal word that never returns void. And so, God, I pray that you would help your people to hear your voice through my mouth this morning and that we would all worship you, for you are great and mighty, and you bring great joy to your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So in 1944, this was an attempt that was given to explain the text that we have this morning in John chapter 2. This theologian said, what happened is this. When the wine was gone, Jesus suggested that they use water. The master of the banquet, entering into the spirit of the event, he joked, this Jesus, this wine is the best of all. And a servant passing by and heard this phrase by accident, not knowing that it was a joke, began to say that Jesus transformed the water into wine. The story of the miracle came from there. This attempt to explain what was going on, this posture of this interpreter, was that miracles just are not possible. This author who wrote this didn't think that the God who created the world, who created everything out of nothing, could step into the world again and perform miracles. It's the same sort of thinking that causes people to think, well, you know, Jesus didn't really heal that person that was demon-possessed. It was a mental episode that they were freed from. Or that that person really didn't heal that sick person. It was something that was psychological going on within them. Or he didn't really raise that person from the dead. They were sleeping. Miracles, friends, in the Bible happen. And remember, this is the testimony of John the Apostle. John was at this wedding. The other disciples were there too, and so was Jesus' mother. But lest we think that these people had ulterior motives to make sure that this story about water becoming wine was true, remember that the entire wedding guest party was there as well. And when John wrote this gospel, many of these folks were still alive. And if it didn't happen, they would have been able to easily refute and discredit what took place. As a reminder, John chapter 20, that now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so signs could be a miracle. It could be a healing. It could be a feeding of 5,000 or even raising someone from the dead. And we'll see all of those as we continue in our study in the Gospel of John. Jesus performs signs to prove or verify who he is so that the reader, so that we might believe. And so let's look at our text again, this particular sign, and see how it helps us to believe who Jesus is and what he's done. Let's look again at verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
At first glance, this miracle does not seem very impressive, although I'm sure some alcohol distributors would think it is very impressive. It could have been more impressive for Jesus to start with the feeding of the 5,000 with two loaves and five fish. Or it could have been more impressive to just go ahead and raise Lazarus from the dead. But why did John choose this miracle to start out his gospel? He chose this miracle of changing water to wine. In this wedding, it took place in a small town called Cana, not far from Jesus' home of Nazareth, about 10 miles. So continue, as Tyler reminded us, to think about small, rural, central Vermont. These are the types of people that Jesus goes to. And we see Jesus' mother is at this wedding. This probably means that this wedding was a close family friend or even a relative of Jesus. And that's probably why Mary thought it was necessary for her to take some action, to go to Jesus, to say, the water, the wine has ran out, to do something. Mary goes to Jesus and he says to her in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Let me clarify what's going on here before we move on. Jesus is not being disrespectful to his mother. That doesn't mean, men, that you should talk to any women in our culture by just calling them woman. Jesus is not just a guest at this wedding that is trying to sit back and relax and enjoy the festivities either. Woman is actually a respectful term in the first century that Jesus is using. Let me give you an example. In John chapter 19, Jesus is on the cross. He's been crucified. He's being close to death. He's taking his final breaths and he says this to Mary. When Jesus saw his mother and his disciples, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son, as he is encouraging her to follow John the Evangelist and also John the Evangelist to care for his mother. Jesus respects Mary. And culturally speaking, running out of wine at a wedding was a big deal. There could have been a lawsuit based on what had transpired. It could have brought shame to this family. But it ran out. And seemingly, Jesus didn't want to intervene. He wasn't going to listen to his mother. Jesus says his hour has not yet come. Because Jesus' hour normally refers to the time where he would be crucified and die. John chapter 12, when his hour is happening, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what we see here is even Mary, his own mother, doesn't give, doesn't get the right to intervene in what Jesus is doing. He, she doesn't get the right to intervene in this foreordained plan of what was to take place in the first century in Israel, to intervene in Jesus' messianic ministry, where the kingdom of God is of more importance than what Jesus' mother wants him to do. And one commentator suggested that this is actually a great 
reason why the Catholic Church is wrong in venerating and praying to Mary, where you see that even Jesus is over Mary, where Mary doesn't have a special place or special purpose or special powers in the kingdom of God. But what Mary does do, in verse 5, she says to the servants, do whatever he says. Mary seems to have some hope that Jesus will do something. She shakes off Jesus' gentle rebuke and her persevering faith causes her to tell these servants to listen to what he says. You got to remember, she knew exactly who Jesus was. And maybe she wanted him to show the world what he came to do. That he really is the Messiah. And so the wine ran out. Jesus said, it's not his hour. Mary says to the servants, listen to Jesus. The most important thing to see here is, again, John's theological emphases in his gospel. For Israel, there were prophecies that running out of wine was signified as a people of Israel with a spiritual barrenness, that they were barren from the Holy Spirit leading and guiding them. We see spiritual fruit being signified in the Old Testament with wine, Proverbs 3, 9-10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Or Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15. God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So wine in their culture was something very familiar, something everyday ordinary for them to relate to. Around here, maybe it would be something like your maple groves will burst forth with tons of syrup this, when, this spring. John the Evangelist, he is leading us down a purposeful path. He wants us to see the spiritual dryness of God's people and that what they are experiencing. But when Jesus arrived, what he is about to do to change things. Jesus responds. Mary gets her wish. Let's pick up on the text and see what happens in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory 
and his disciples believed in him. So that spiritual dryness and barrenness that I talked about has now led to great rejoicing. There were these six large jars. And what these jars do is they point us to this old order, this old sacrificial system, this old covenant law that is represented by Moses. For these jars were used for purification of the outside of us. And the servants, they follow Mary's instructions and they follow Jesus' instructions and they fill the jars. And they fill them to the brim, to the very top. And like Israel, the jars were for washing. They were barren, but now they are filled with something. And the servants listen again and they take some of this liquid out and they take it to the master of the feast. Think about a wedding coordinator. The bridegroom was to have everything ready, paid for, ready to go at the wedding and this master of the feast was supposed to execute all of the bridegroom's wishes. To make sure everything was taken care of. But something is different about this Water. It is now turned to wine. But this wine is also special. It's the best wine. This is the first century. Health conditions were not the greatest. Apparently around here, health conditions aren't the greatest either. But clean drinking water back then was not something rather readily available. And so what they would do is they would mix wine with water to purify or to make the water more potable. Oftentimes it was three parts water to one part wine. It was very diluted. Sometimes even as much as 10 parts water to wine. It's not the or everyday ordinary wine that we would buy in a store today. It's kind of like today's maybe American beer where the alcohol content is very, very low. And normally good wine was served first so that people could enjoy it, enjoy it and the bad wine was given at the end where it didn't matter as much. Their tastes had all gone away after they had been celebrating this wedding for probably a few days. I think it would be appropriate to take a quick little aside to talk about wine. Proverbs 20. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink, a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And so friends, I do not believe the Bible condemns the consumption of alcohol. Jesus had wine with his disciples at the Lord's Supper. That doesn't mean we're going to change our grape juice to wine on Sundays but he did have wine with his disciples. Paul even commanded Timothy to drink a little wine to help him with his stomach ailments. But what is prohibited in Scripture clearly and repeatedly is drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18 And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Or 1 Peter 5.8, be sober 
minded. Be watchful. So friends, I think you are free to have a drink of alcohol. But Paul is also clear in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 that we are to follow our conscience. If your conscience doesn't permit you to drink alcohol, don't drink alcohol. If the government doesn't permit you to drink alcohol because you are underage, it means don't drink alcohol. It, the Bible doesn't permit us to go against the government in this. I'm sorry, kids. And kids doesn't mean like the little ones. If you are around a brother or sister who struggles with alcohol, you are free to partake. But in love, you are also free to abstain for the sake of your brother and sister in Christ. 1 Corinthians 8.13 Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Exchange that word meat for anything including wine or alcohol. Friends, alcohol is okay. Drunkenness is not okay. Let's get back to John chapter 2. John abruptly ends the wedding and says, this is the first of Jesus' signs where he manifested his glories and the disciples believed. Three things before we start to apply this to our lives. So we'll talk about signs, we'll talk about glory, and we'll talk about believing. First signs. Remember John chapter 20, verse 30. He did many other signs. And you may be thinking, well, was this a sign or was this a miracle? Or is there even a difference? It was a miracle. Not a normal, natural thing to change substance from one thing to another. God who created everything, he steps back into the world again in which we live and he begins to act. We will see more miracles in the Gospel of John, but this was also a sign as well. It was a symbol of something more significant. And something to remember as we talk about symbols or signs in the Bible, especially as we continue in our study of the Gospel of John, one of my professors once said, symbols can mean a number of things, but they do not mean just anything. We need to look at the context, the greater sense of what is going on in the text to figure out what is going on here in our text this morning. So this first symbol is that of a wedding. In scripture, when weddings are mentioned, oftentimes they're a symbol of the kingdom of God. Just as any marriage is a picture of Jesus and the church, weddings in scripture often have a meaning pointing to the future consummation of God's kingdom. Jesus used parables in Matthew 22 and 25 to talk about a wedding feast to point to the kingdom of God. Jesus warned his disciples in Luke chapter 12 to be ready as if you're going to a wedding as well. And John the Evangelist, he didn't get these events from a book of fables. He chose to account for these specific miracles. Jesus performed for a reason. 
to point God's people to belief in Jesus' work and leads to their salvation. You got to remember that the book of John was the last of the four Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written. They had already talked about these teachings that Jesus had given about a wedding pointing to the kingdom of God. And so when John was writing his Gospel, his readers were already familiar with Jesus' teaching. So John didn't need to remind them that a wedding points to the kingdom of God. They already would have known that, and they would have easily picked up on those themes. In Revelation, some years later, John wrote this, finishing up our understanding of this. This end-time banquet to get us to participate as God's people, as the bride who are finally joined with our bridegroom, the Lamb of God. John, or Revelation 19. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Friends, weddings point to our future with God forever. And in the end, the food and the wine are abundant. Again, it's a sign of blessing. Not to be a glutton or a drunkard. Wedding is the first symbol. The second is that of the wine. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You see how wine was a blessing for God's people as well as a wedding, is a symbol of the coming of the kingdom of God. Joel 2 says this, The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil. You will be satisfied, and I will, make, I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Or Jeremiah 31, They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. You want another one, don't you? Amos 9. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman, it's not snow plowman, shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow from it. You see, both the wedding and the wine are symbols of the grace of God. Jesus is turning this water into wine in a miracle, and it's used by John to point to the arrival of the Word made flesh. We started with an absence of wine. It had ran out with barrenness, signifying a spiritual barrenness of God's people, the nation of Israel. And we end up with a huge wedding, an abundance of wine, and the best of it. All of those point to the grace of God, to the people of God, that we will receive ultimately, friends, when we get to celebrate with the Lamb of God face to face one day. Think about the greatest pleasures that you have here on earth. You might be sitting next to a couple of them, Heaven will be so much better than all of that combined. Do you believe that? Do you cling to that which you have here, not wanting it to be taken away? Do you believe the good pleasures of this world are a way that God points us to that which is so much better in the age to come? If I'm honest, I struggle to believe that sometimes. I like my family. I love the beauty of this great state in which we live in. I like good food and occasionally a good glass of wine. Sometimes, if I'm honest, I don't want to give up the pleasures of this world. But heaven, friends, is so much better. And I ask God that he would help me to believe that. And maybe you should too. We talked about the signs. Let's talk about Jesus manifesting his glory. And what we get in heaven is God's full glory manifested for all to see. Where Jesus manifested his glory, John says in verse 11, and the disciples believed. <clears throat> As a reminder from a few weeks ago, John chapter 1, verse 14, 16, and 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Glory is God's holiness manifest for all to see. And it's often described as this manifesting of bright light. And we're seeing here Jesus manifest God for us to see. The God who created everything. He is still powerful so powerful enough that he can step into the world to change water to wine, which is easy for him because he created everything out of nothing. 
And Jesus, he supersedes the law that came from Moses. And he provides this grace upon grace and a great quality of grace, a grace that is so excellent and so abundant for his people. Friends, with Jesus, the best is yet to come. And sometimes it causes us to suffer a loss or sometimes God allows us to suffer a loss like a wedding without wine for us to truly real, realize the amount of grace that he gives to us. Seeing God for who he is, that he is holy, almighty, powerful, is seeing his glory. And so as you're reflecting on your week, as you're going about your day, as you look out your windows, what are you reflecting on? Ask God to give you the ability to see his mighty acts in your life so that you can see his glory and give him the glory back that he deserves because of it. So signs, glory, and finally, Jesus manifests his glory so that we might believe. The disciples believed, and this belief had salvific consequences. The new covenant of God that was hoped for by the prophets is being fulfilled, and we see this in the signs of the wedding, the sign of the wine, and an abundance of wine as God displays his glory. The disciples, they begin to believe in Jesus. Not in Moses, not in the law, but in Jesus who provides grace upon grace. And so do you believe, like they do, there's nothing that we have to do, like the law of Moses would say, to receive eternal life, except believe in the gracious God of the universe who died in our place on the cross for our sins. And in verse 12, it's a weird transition. We see that Jesus just moves on abruptly. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. We'll touch base on this a little bit next week because I think it connects to next week's passage as well. But it's as if Jesus just goes about his daily business forgetting that he just changed water to wine. And what John is doing here is he is placing a greater emphasis not on Jesus' public ministry, but on his private ministry of what he does with his disciples, with the apostles. And John is moving the story on to Jerusalem, as we'll see next week, for Passover. So how do we apply this message to our lives today? How does this passage help us to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, we may have life in his name? Thanks for asking. I think there's six ways. First, Jesus came to fulfill the old system and bring a new system. John the Baptist, he wanted to 
Uh, he was the prophetic connection to the old covenant. And now we have a connection to the new covenant and what that practically means. It means believing in Jesus and what he came to do. And that's the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what we believe in. That is our only hope. Where Jesus came from this old system for the new system or covenant. That's for all the nations. Did you catch that when I read those passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel? But the covenant is for all the nations. The prophecies point to the blessing being for all nations, not just the nation of Israel. The fulfillment of God's promises that Israel will be the light and a witness to the nations that he, God had given to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations are coming about. But not because of Israel's faithfulness. Because of God's faithfulness to his own word. And the gospel comes even to us here in rural central Vermont out of God's grace just like it came to the entire world not just Israel. Number three John is being an evangelist. There is joy in salvation with wine and a wedding not with water and a funeral. We are to follow John's example. We are to point people to Jesus. We are to share the gospel. And friends, at one point, none of us in this room believed. Someone shared the gospel with us. We can follow John's example and share of who Jesus is and what he has done. Fourth, the reason for us sharing is because there's hope for salvation. The end has finally entered into the world, we see here in the text this morning. Jesus, the word became flesh, has entered into the world, and he has started to act. It was hoped for and longed for, but now it has arrived in the person and work of Jesus. And we hope and wait for him to return again. He did it once, and he said he will do it again, and he kept his word, and he will keep it again friends. Fifth, God is faithful to keep his promises. The kingdom of God is here. It is not just coming. Although this world we live in is st still has the presence of sin, the war is over. As the battles rage on every day, the war, the end is over. And friends, that should as well give us hope. And finally, number six, I think it's important to be reminded of Jesus' humility. He cares for the poor when their wine ran out. In the smallest of the small towns, there's a small wedding. Jesus doesn't just care about that small town in Cana 2,000 years ago. He cares about us. He cares about your neighbors. He cares about your family. He cares about your co-workers. And he wants to use you like the Apostle John, John the Evangelist, to be an evangelist to your friends, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to the people that you are acquainted with. 
But Jesus doesn't demand any attention here. Because in the end, he will get all the worship. We saw that in our study of Philippians. He could have said, Woman, my time has not arrived. And when he changed the water to wine, he could have said, Oh, my time has arrived now. He doesn't, though. He doesn't take away the attention of this wedding. He doesn't take away the attention of the bridegroom, even though all bridegrooms point to him. He simply moves on to another town and continues his ministry. Friends, humility isn't thinking less highly of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Friends, John 2 shows us the hope that we have in Jesus, the hope of the entire world. And there is great joy with Jesus, and he invites us into it. This all comes about because Jesus is humble. The Word made flesh who came to die so that we could have everlasting life. That's gospel joy. That is so much better than every wedding we've ever been or any glass of wine that we could ever have. And I'll close with these words of Jesus in the gospel of John, uh, Mark. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your son who came in humility, fully God, who took on flesh to dwell with your people. And God, we thank you for the grace that we've been able to see that he cares so much to serve this little wedding party. But ultimately, it was his death on the cross on our behalf that would serve us most importantly so that we would be able to be with you forever. And so God, that is good news of great joy for all people. And so God, we ask that you would help us to continue to worship you in that for the rest of our time this morning and ultimately for the rest of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.